Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. And welcome to the Heritage Foundation's Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. Uh, I'm Andrew Parks, the program, uh, excuse me, the assistant director in lectures and seminars. Uh, thank you so much for your patience. We apologize for this late delay this morning. Uh, I just wanted to take the opportunity to remind everyone to please silence their cell phones. And uh, for anyone watching online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Now it's my pleasure to introduce the host of today's program, Jim Phillips. He is the Senior Research Fellow in Middle Eastern Affairs here at the Heritage Foundation. Jim. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, welcome to Heritage again today. I'm glad that so many people come through the rain, through the voting obligations. Hope you get out to vote if you haven't done so yet. Uh, we're approaching a key inflection point in the evolving confrontation with Iran. And yesterday, the Trump uh, administration uh, act reactivated nuclear sanctions that it had initially reimposed last May. Uh, the second round of sanctions is targeted at uh, Iran's oil, uh, shipping, and banking sectors. Uh, but this time around, as opposed to um, the crisis uh, with Iran during the Obama administration, uh, there is not as much international buy-in with inter international sanctions, and that has led to more uncertainty about the likely impact of those sanctions and the way uh, Iran is likely to uh, react. Tehran apparently believes that it can ride out the sanctions and outweigh uh, the Trump administration. It's refused since May to negotiate on the nuclear issue with the Trump administration, and it undoubtedly hopes to uh, have a new administration after 2020 uh, to negotiate with. And I think for that reason, Iranian officials will be watching this midterm election as much as many Americans. Now, we're fortunate to have with us today an expert panel uh, to look at a number of issues. Uh, this panel uh, will include uh, uh, Mark Dubowitz, the CEO of the Foundation of the Defense for Democracies, Michael Duran of the Hudson Institute, and Patrick Clausen of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. We'll be looking at uh, the likely impact of sanctions, uh, what additional U.S. policies are needed to deal with a wider range of uh, Iran's uh, behavior, uh, and what needs to be done if anything, to get to uh, an improved uh, nuclear agreement. Is that in the cards? Uh, and I'll introduce the speakers in our order of speaking. Our, our first speaker is Patrick Clausen. He's the Morningstar uh, Senior Fellow and Director of Research at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Uh, he directs the Iran Security Initiative there. He's widely consulted as an analyst and media commentator. He's authored more than 150 articles about the Middle East and international economics and is the author or editor of 18 books or studies on Iran. He appears frequently on television and radio and has uh, op-eds in uh, major uh, American newspapers. He's also testified before congressional committees more than 20 times and has served as an expert witness in more than 30 federal cases against Iran. Prior to joining the Washington Institute, he was a senior research professor at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies. He, and he also was a senior economist at the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and a research scholar at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. So take it away, Patrick. 
Great. So the sanctions that were um, U.S.'s reimposing are going to work most effectively if the, the United States can form a broad domestic consensus about this matter, a broad international consensus about this matter, and can uh, demonstrate effective uh, enforcement uh, of these sanctions. And these are all going to be big challenges. Um, but I'm going to leave it to my colleagues to address those matters because I suspect that that's uh, their greatest interest, whereas my comparative advantage here is talking about developments inside Iran. So let me just discuss that. And uh, there, the challenges that we face about um, making our sanctions policy work effectively to persuade Iran to change its behavior um, are really um, the difficult political environment inside Iran where uh, there's uh, – Two factions, each of which are dedicated to preserving the Islamic Republic but uh, have different ideas about how to do that uh, and they spend most of their time and effort uh, sniping at each other and uh, that sanctions gets caught up in that. Um, so what we have is a group of people well, like Hassan Rouhani, uh, call them technocrats if you want. Uh, I, I detest the term moderates because uh, these are people who are deeply committed to the Islamic Republic and its ideals but just think that the way to achieve this is by smiling rather than uh, blowing smoke in your face rather than spitting in your uh, in your face. Um, and uh, then there's a, a group around the Revolutionary Guards who believe that uh, resistance, resistance, and resistance is the way to go. Now, right now, the uh, latter camp, the Revolutionary Guards, are really quite delighted by the country's economic problems. And ever since the Iranian real started to crash in March, uh, they have uh, mobilized their media uh, and um, speeches by their leaders to contrast the successes that Iran has been having in the regional policy, which they run, in places like Syria and Yemen, uh, with the uh, failures of the economic policy for which the Rouhani team has taken responsibility. And uh, the, this theme is uh, uh, that, uh, see, we can do it. We, the Revolutionary Guards, can do a good job, but those guys can't. And so uh, those guys, the technocrats, uh, told us that uh, when they replaced uh, the Ahmadinejad, who was something of a buffoon, that uh, that uh, we would have a competent team running things. Well, we haven't. And indeed, I would say the Rouhani team's incompetence has been stunning. Uh, and so the, the Revolutionary Guards are saying that uh, – are, are in the very good position where um, if, if the economy does poorly as a result of the sanctions, they can say, see, that's Rouhani's fault. Uh, Rouhani misdiagnosed things when he told you when he was running for president uh, that uh, the way to solve Iran's economic problems was to do a deal with the West. That's just not true. And um, uh, this shows that Rouhani is naive uh, and uh, you shouldn't listen to him. On the other hand, if the economy does well, uh, then the IRGC can say, well, see, we told you that the resistance economy is the way to go and that uh, we don't need the West and that, in, in fact, uh, um, our policy of resistance is what m makes sense in the economic sphere as well as the foreign policy sphere. So if the economy does badly, the IRGC will take credit and if the economy does well, they will take credit. Um, meanwhile, uh, Rouhani is in somewhat in the opposite situation uh, and uh, he did promise uh, that uh, – did say when he was running for president that the country's fundamental problem was its economic situation and promised that he with more competence could solve it and he actually did have a okay economic performance for a little bit but it but uh, in general uh, the economy has not done well under his presidency the average iranian household's budget according to iranian government sources is down about 10% from where it was uh, when he took office and that contrasts to the previous decade in which the average household budget rose by about 20% so if you go from a decade of 20% growth to <laughs> you know, six years of 10% decline, you're not happy campers. 
Uh, and that's a situation where Hani faces. And frankly, most of the problems are because of their own uh, corruption and mismanagement and uh, the political deadlock, which makes it impossible for the Rouhani team to make even the most modest and obvious uh, structural reforms. Uh, but sanctions doesn't make this, isn't going to make this any easier. And so what we've seen is that whether it's the Iranian Modulus Research Center or international institutions like uh, the World Bank and the IMF uh, all agree that they've changed their forecasts from in March when they were forecasting that the Iranian economy would grow quite briskly over the next few years. And now they're all saying that Iran is already in a recession and the recession will get worse. Um, so Rouhani is in a, a tough situation. Um, and uh, that's going to be uh, 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 the environment of uh, maneuvering about uh, whether or not to resume negotiations with the United States about uh, an additional deal. Um, I think that uh, uh, Jim put it very nicely when he said that the basic strategy of the Rouhani team is going to be to outweigh Trump. And... Um, and my talks with Iranian officials that uh, who in the spring were very nervous, uh, now they're extremely confident. And um, I th- that confidence is uh, that uh, they think, well, we've sustained bad sanctions in the past. We can do it again. Uh, and in any way, uh, we are well positioned to control the population if there are going to be any kind of uh, protests. Uh, and we can outweigh Trump. So the challenge for the Trump administration is shaking shaking that confidence. Thank you, Patrick. On time, unusual for a speaker. <laughs> Our next speaker is Mark Dubowitz. He's the CEO of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, he's uh, the chief executive at FDD. It's a Washington, D.C.-based nonpartisan policy institute where he leads projects on Iran, sanctions, and nonproliferation. Uh, uh, Mark is an expert on Iran's nuclear program and global threat network and is widely recognized as one of the key influencers in shaping sanctions policies to counter the threats from the Iranian regime. According to the New York Times, Mark Dubowitz's campaign to draw attention uh, to what he saw as the flaws in the Iran nuclear deal has taken its place among the most consequential ever undertaken by a Washington think tank leader. And that must have cost you a lot to get them to say that. I'll take it away, Mark. All right, Jim, thank you so much, and and great to be here with Patrick and, and with Mike. So I want to actually begin, because today is Election Day, um, talking about the the challenge, Jim, that you raised, which is, is there the possibility of a, of a bipartisan Iran policy? And what does the Iran policy look like potentially if the Iranians are right and they can wait out Trump and there's a new president in the White House in 2021? I want to begin there because I think it, it's important for us to, to acknowledge that the Iran issue – in some respects, has become very part- partisan and polarizing, but in other respects, has a deep bipartisan foundation to it. And those, the foundation to it is the concern that both Democrats and Republicans have about Iran's non-nuclear malign behavior, its support for terrorism, its missile program, its human rights abuses, its support for um, Bashar Assad's you know, slaughter in Syria, and its destabilizing activities both in the Middle East and, and around the world. That's where a new president will begin, facing an Islamic Republic that continues its aggressive and malign and destructive behavior and, and a sanctions uh, structure um, that, again, will be predicated on all of this malign behavior and will be very difficult to suspend or lift as a result. The other reality that this president will face in 2021 is that a number of the restrictions that are in the JCPOA will be coming to a head. So in 2021, uh, the arms embargo that's in the UN Security Council Resolution 2231 that essentially embeds the JCPOA uh, internationally, those arms embargo, that arms embargo will be sunsetting and Iran will be able to engage in um, almost unlimited purchases of, uh, of weaponry from countries around the world. In 2024, the restrictions on Iran's missile program the UN missile embargo will sunset. 
Uh, and again, Iran will be able to procure parts and components for its missile program from, from countries around the world with at least not facing UN restrictions. Uh, the IRGC restrictions that um, are both in, in the UN Security Council resolution as well as a number of European-related IRGC restrictions are going to sunset. And then in 2024 as well, Iran will be able to start to semi-industrialize its advanced centrifuges. So these are the more powerful IR6s and 8s uh, that Iran will start to be able to install in its enrichment facilities, of course, more powerful machines, enrich uranium more efficiently. You need fewer numbers, which makes it easier to hide. So Iran then begins to, to develop an easier advanced centrifuge-powered clandestine sneak-out option. And then in 2026, um, so, so just in the, that president's uh, second term, early in their second term, many of the restrictions go away because that's the 10-year that's the mark of the, the JCPOA, right, which, which, which we date from implementation day in January uh, 2016. So that's a number of very important restrictions on Iran's um, nuclear, missile, uh, military, and um, and IRGC activities that will come off in the first term of that new president or early in the second term. So the political and national security reality is whoever is in the White House in January 2021 is going to be facing the necessity of of Knoth combating Iran's destructive activities and putting in place an Iran policy that's going to deal with the reality of these flaws of the JCPOA where these key restrictions start to go. And at that point, it's not 10 years away. It's, you know, a few years away. And I think that's that's the wake-up call for anybody who's sitting in the White House. And I think that's the wake-up call for people sitting in Iran who are thinking they can wait out Donald Trump with a view that the next president coming into office is going to be very flexible, lift all the sanctions, and won't have, you know, won't be using instruments of national power to combat the Islamic Republic of Iran. I think that's, I think it's a bad strategy for the Iranians, and I think they're in for a big wake-up call, regardless of who's sitting in the White House in January 2021. So, what about this administration? This administration has at least two years, um, potentially six years, to implement their Iran strategy. And their Iran strategy is very much modeled after the strategy that Ronald Reagan used against the Soviet Union during the Cold War, which is to use all instruments of national power to weaken the regime, to neutralize it, to roll back its influence regionally and globally. And with respect to all instruments of national power, the one you've heard most about, which Patrick has talked about, and you've probably been reading all about in the past few days, is financial and economic power. Right? And we can talk a lot about sanctions and other instruments of financial power, but it's clear this administration is fully committed to financial warfare against the Islamic Republic. And the sanctions that came back yesterday and the sanctions that came back six months ago are both powerful and are having the impact that, that all of you have been reading about with respect to Iran's domestic activities. But that does leave the open questions about other instruments of national power. I know Mike's going to re talk about Iran's role in the region and what the United States is doing to combat that. But the other instruments of national power, besides financial and economic coercion, include um, political and information warfare. They include cyber warfare, covert action, obviously uh, what's happening on the military side. And there the administration has developed a comprehensive policy. It's developed the policy of a detailed interagency policy. And some of that is visible to us and some of it's not, particularly what, what the agency is doing under um, the leadership of, of Mike D'Andrea, who's head of the Iran team at, at the CIA, who was put in place by then CIA Director Pompeo uh, to really put the agency on a much more aggressive footing with new authorities with renewed uh, old authorities that had lapsed under President Obama uh, to really engage in, in covert action against the Islamic Republic, including uh, psychological warfare. There's been a lot of uh, recent reporting on cyber, including just recently some reporting that there was a major uh, cyber attack against Iran's um, telecommunications facilities and, and, and infrastructure. Um, we're not sure where that comes from, but it's clear that there are there are people out there, if if not in the U.S. elsewhere, who are engaging in offensive cyber warfare against the Islamic Republic, as is the Islamic Republic engaging in cyber warfare against um, the United States and, and our allies. And on the political warfare side, I think Secretary Pompeo, in particular, is really the the, the lead um, and most eloquent spokesperson 
for a information operations campaign against the Islamic Republic. And he, you know, through his Twitter account, through speeches, through, um, through VOA Persian, through Farda, and through a constant drumbeat about this regime and its destructive behavior, um, that's at least the overt side of this campaign, which I would expect to be seeing more and more of. My only concern, and I'll just end with this, is, is there a, Mike, and I think you'll, you'll address this, is there a robust military plan to really neutralize and roll back the influence of the Islamic Republic in the region? Um, is it a plan where the U.S. military is prepared to provide a, a measure of deterrence uh, to send a clear message to the Islamic Republic that if they do escalate in the region, there will be serious consequences? Or are we essentially subcontracting this to countries like Israel, the UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, as well as surrogates on the ground? Um, are we backing them up with the, the intelligence they need? Are we backing them up with the support they need? Certainly, in terms of public reporting, the Israelis have done significant damage to Iranian military infrastructure in Syria with over 200 strikes in a year and a half. And there's every indication that that will continue despite many of the complications that Israel obviously is going to have with Russia in uh, in that very crowded airspace. And I will I will just conclude by saying this. My expectation over the next two years, if that's all the uh, Trump administration has, is that this will be an, a relentless and, um, and unrelenting campaign of pressure against the Islamic Republic. Will they crack the Islamic Republic in two years? Most experts say they won't. But I will remind you that in 1983, when Ronald Reagan unveiled National Security Decision Directive 75 to really target the Soviet Union, most experts didn't predict that the Soviet Union would crack six, seven years later. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. And our batting cleanup is Michael Duran. He's the senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he specializes in Middle Eastern security issues. He served as the senior director at the National Security Council in the administration of George W. Bush. Uh, and he was responsible there for helping to devise and coordinate U.S. strategies on a variety of Middle Eastern issues, including Arab-Israeli relations and U.S. efforts to contain Iran and Syria. He's also served in the Bush administration as a senior advisor in the State Department and a deputy assistant secretary of defense in the Pentagon. Before uh, coming to the Hudson Institute, he was a senior fellow at Brookings Institution, and he's also... Uh, uh, taught at NYU, Princeton, and the University of Central Florida. And his latest book, uh, Ike's Gamble, uh, is uh, out there and uh, soon to be a major motion picture, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, Michael, take it away. Yeah, I, I wish that was the case. Uh, thanks, Jim. Um, I, I'd like to start by just um, putting it uh, the the Trump policy in the kind of widest possible uh, perspective. Uh, there are two, I think, ideas out there in the world about um, how you should, how we should be um, dealing with the Iran challenge. I'm going to, for the sake of discussion, I'm going to call uh, one the European plan and then, uh, and then the European slash Obama plan and then the American plan. But these are sort of ideal types I'm talking about there. I don't think any country has a, is a perfect representative of what I'm talking about. But they're, they're just two different theories of Iran. The European and Obama idea was that the way to deal with the Iran challenge was to entangle Iran in a web of um, international agreements and mutual dependencies um, uh, the, you know, I often, in, in the last few years, I've been going quite frequently to, uh, Berlin. And I think the, the, what I'm calling the European and Obama plan is best typified by the foreign ministry of Germany. Um, the, the Germans have a set of assumptions about the world that are sort of diametrically opposed to our, to our own. Um, we believe in general Americans are tend to believe in, hard power competition with rogue regimes, and we, we believe in hard economic competition with rogue regimes. Um, the German attitude is uh, whatever the problem is, the answer is money. Um, and you you invest in these countries and you, you entangle them in, um, in economic dependencies, and that, uh, that changes the calculus 
in, in the capital, whether it's Moscow or Tehran. Um, and leaders, even if they're hardline leaders who are hostile to the West, they, they start to, out of a, their own sense of self-interest and their own economic interest, they start to, uh, they start to shade some of their, uh, their options more toward engagement than toward, um, than toward confrontation. Um, and similarly with hard military competition, you want to show these countries that we're not inveterately, uh, implacably hostile to them, that we can work together on certain common projects. Um, and so you tend to, um, you tend to tone down the deterrence or outright confrontation in the military sphere. That was the, as I understand it, that was the theory of the JCPOA. Um, the, the, the Trump administration has come in and it is really, um, leading hard, at least rhetorically, with the other view, which is that the way, <clears throat> the way to deal with a rogue regime like Iran is to wear it down through hard economic and, and, and military, um, competition. I, I, I chose my words carefully there when I said rhetorically though, because I, th- I don't think, if you think of these as a scale with the German foreign ministry over here and, um, I'm not sure who I want to put over, who, who, who's on, who's on this end of the scale. I don't know. Ronald Reagan. Uh, I don't know if Ronald Reagan is on that end of the scale. Um, John Bolton, as he's understood in the New York Times. Um, the, the administration, I don't think it's way over, uh, to the right. It's, 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 it's more toward the center moving toward the right. And I'll explain what I mean, but it, Mark already kind of, foreshadowed what I was going to say when he asked the question, is there, is there a military component to this strategy? And um, my answer is going to be not really, not as much as one, uh, as, as one might think. Um, but let's go back and let's just look at the, let's list some of the major changes since the Obama administration left office. Um, and I, I think they are major. <clears throat> uh, and I say it that way because I've been in the last few days in an argument I can't hide my own views. I, I, I want as robust a military and economic competition with Iran as the American public will accept. Um, uh, and I have been in argument in the last few days with my friends who share that view, who, who are actually, I don't think we're seeing a lot of this in the press, but they're, they're in mourning, uh, the, the waivers that the administration uh, gave to the six countries to import uh, Iranian oil and some of the waivers about civil um, nuclear cooperation with uh, with Iran has has led them to believe that that the Trump administration has completely capitulated. Um, I don't I don't see it that way at all. I think that this is that this is a robust uh, a, a robust economic and military uh, competition strategy, but not as robust as I think some people were kind of hoping for on the basis of the rhetoric of the the administration. So what what's changed since Obama left office? Well, number one, number one, the the rhetoric has changed completely, and uh, Iran is is no longer identified as a potential partner; it is an adversary. Uh, number two, the administration has worked closely with allies in the region. Um, in the Middle East and, and, and outside the Middle East to begin to uh, um, rebuild a kind of anti-Iran coalition, um, most notably with Saudi Arabia and um, and Israel. And as Mark noted, that has that that that's not just a diplomatic that has diplomatic implications, but it also has military implications as well, particularly with a country like Israel, which has significant military capabilities, which is using in Syria against the Iranians. Um, the, Isra- the Israelis can use that power now with the, w- with the uh, confidence that the United States will support it um, uh, diplomatically, um, the support which it needs, particularly with respect to, to, uh, to Moscow. So the Israelis can act with greater, uh, with greater impunity. Um, and also in the clandestine realm, we, I, we don't know for a fact, Mark said that we now know that there are uh, covert um, actions being taken against uh, Iran's nuclear program. We don't know who it is, but pr- presumably um, the, the Israelis are in the mix there. Uh, the Israeli covert action against the Iranian nuclear program was shut down under the Obama administration. Uh, and uh, presumably now, nobody's talking about it, but presumably the prohibition from Washington has been lifted. Uh, then thirdly, our military posture in the region has changed. 
the um, you see this most notably in Syria, where it is now part of the stated policy of the United States to remain in Syria until the Iranians leave, uh, uh, stripping Iran, uh, stripping Syria of Iranian-led forces was one of Mike Pompeo's twelve points uh, with regard to uh, uh, with regard to Iran, um, uh, and uh, and we are now going to re- keep our forces in Syria until. Um, until we are satisfied on that on that point, um, that's a significant fact, I think. Um, but it doesn't really add up to a robust military strategy. Um, <clears throat> it's striking to me that both Israel and the United States now, in terms of their rhetoric, say that it is the goal of their policy to ensure that Syria does not become an Iranian uh, an Iranian base and that the Assad regime isn't simply um, uh, an Arab face to Iranian power. I don't see two things, however. One is the actual military strategy by either the United States or Israel that will achieve that goal. Um, the Israelis are ta- taking significant action to cause the Iranians pain in Syria. But if present trends continue, it doesn't look to me like that those actions are enough to prevent the Iranians from turning Syria into what um, into what uh, they uh, turning Syria into what they the Iranians already have in Lebanon. That is sort of a forward base um, with uh, with with forces poised to strike uh, to strike Israel. Uh, the, the Americans and the Israelis are hoping that uh, that Putin Will, will help them here and that Putin will conclude that it's not in his interest to have the Iranians playing that role in Syria. Um, my, I personally am skeptical that that's going to work. Whether you are skeptical or not skeptical, I, I think we can all see that the military strategy is not there to, to, to achieve the stated goals. The second thing that is really striking to me is that the United States and Israel have the same stated goal with respect to Iran and Syria – but they don't have any kind of significant military coordination between the two of them to achieve that goal. Uh, in fact, the, the the messaging that's coming from U.S. CENTCOM is really, and and even from the Secretary of Defense at times, is is really that we are deterred by the Iranians, uh, uh, particularly because we fear that Iranian, if we if we compete too aggressively in the military sphere with the Iranians in Syria, we will pay a price for that in Iraq. Um, and so we're not seeing, although we have, we, we, we and the Israelis are saying that we want exactly the same thing and we are cooperating to achieve it, I don't see that cooperation in the military sphere, um, at least not to, not to the level that one would that one might expect given the otherwise uh, uh, level of agreement. Um, then, of course, the, the finally, w- with respect to how things have changed, we can see the the uh, uh, all that the that uh, my colleagues here discussed about the changes in the um, attitude towards sanctions and the JCPOA um, and, and so forth. What isn't really clear to me um, uh, about the the new strategy is what its goal is. Um, The Obama administration sought an agreement with Iran, some kind of accommodation. The Trump administration has bent over backwards to say that it is not carrying out a regime change policy. The, The Europeans, it's interesting, don't believe us. They look at Mike Pompeo's 12 points and they say that is a regime change Policy in all but name, and then they pointed John Bolton in the in the um, as uh, national security advisor, and they say that this is really regime change. Um, personally, I don't believe that uh, uh, because of the, the the personality of the president. I think Donald Trump uh, ideologically is opposed to regime change. This is one of the ways in which he has distinguished himself consciously from George uh, W. Bush. And just sort of characterologically sees himself as a great negotiator. So um, uh, my my best guess, and I don't know any any better than anyone else in this room what 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 he wants, but is that Trump actually wants a deal. 
um, uh, what we'll never know is because he'll keep it in his head is what's the deal that he would accept with the uh, uh, with the Iranians. But the fact that he wants a deal in my mind also moves it. If we go back to the spectrum between uh, the, the the Germans and the and the American hardest of hardliners, it moves it in the, that it moves our policy. Uh, in the direction of the Germans, although I think we're in the we're definitely in the hard line uh, sphere here um, of the uh, of the spectrum. Um, but I'm not as confident as Mark that this means that in the next 24 to 27 months we're going to win. Um, uh, the what I personally would like to see is a complete reversal. Uh, of the Obama strategy, and I would like the the Trump administration to ensure that by the 2020 elections, they have made it as hard for the next administration to overturn what they've done as the Obama administration did uh, to uh, uh, to those of us who didn't like what uh, um, what 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 Obama did. And I'm not convinced, given the way things are at the moment. That if uh, if Trump were to lose in 2020 and the and a Obama administration too was to come in in whatever form, whether it's uh, um, President Deval Patrick or Kamala Harris or I don't know who, uh, uh, that they couldn't just very quickly return back to the uh, to the to the Obama policy than to the JCPOA because that's what the Europeans and the Democrats are hoping they're hoping to, and to work with the Iranians to keep it on life support until they can come back and revive it. Well, thanks, Mike. And we're going to open it up to questions. And to give the uh, interns time to get around, I'm going to ask the first question, and that would be to basically everybody on the panel, uh, is that if you were in the place of, uh, uh, say, the NSC advisor to talk to uh, President Trump, um, what – and you could only emphasize one or two points. What what would be the the major – uh, takeaway that you would leave with with the president on how to uh, increase the economic or geopolitical pressure on Iran. And we've talked about reimposing past sanctions, but there's a lot of other new sanctions that the administration has uh, hinted about. Uh, broaden the base of support for these sanctions. So, for instance, the administration in its actions yesterday actually did not call these reimposition of nuclear sanctions. Uh, almost all of the sanctions which were imposed were done for counterterrorism reasons. Some were done for human rights reasons. And that offers a broader basis for getting support from Democrats here in the United States and a broader basis for getting support for Europeans, especially since the Iranians are stupid enough to be carrying out terrorist actions in Europe. So to the extent to which you can remind Democrats and Europeans that we share, all of us, a common objection to Iran's behaviors and supporting terrorism and destabilizing the region, you are more likely to form uh, the kind of consensus about sanctions which is going to outlast this first Trump administration. And that is what is going to most persuade the Iranians uh, that the guy come back to the negotiating table if they think that these sanctions are going to be around for a long time. So my advice, Mr. President, is uh, frame what you're doing in terms that are going to get uh, the maximum degree of support from Democrats and from uh, Europeans. So if the advice is only limited to, to sanctions, then um, – We could Im Im right. broaden it out. Yeah, I mean what I'd, what I'd first recommend is um, – to be much more aggressive in going after uh, the regime on on human rights grounds. So yesterday's designations, uh, there were 700 designations, 300 new ones. I counted only two uh, human rights designations, and I think that there is a lot of opportunity for this administration uh, to go after Iran's leadership, um, to go after the you know the the brutal repression, the corruption. Our FDD just put out a report on Iran's you know so-called dirty dozen. The, the 12 most abusive uh, Iranian officials with respect to human rights. On corruption, I was pleased to see that they designated the Supreme Leader's $95 billion uh, corporate conglomerate, uh, the execution of Imam Khomeini's order. Um, but that's only the beginning. There are a number of the Mostazavan Foundation, the Astan Quds Foundation. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of foundations um, that the Supreme Leader controls that have been valued uh, by 
by experts at over two, three hundred billion dollars. So I would, I would, I'd go after the, the corruption and go after those um, these kind of hedge funds and foundations and corporate conglomerates. And then my general advice to the president, and I think this builds off Mike's comment, is just be careful. I mean, you know, Zarif is just itching to get you back in the room for a negotiation, uh, despite the, you know the, the uh, interviews that he's giving that they won't negotiate with the Trump administration until the U.S. is back in the JCPOA. I don't believe that. I think uh, both Zarif and Rouhani can't wait to get back into the room. And the president's got to be very, very careful because the Iranians have been trapping American leaders in negotiations for years. Um, and I can see them using those negotiations to significantly undermine this maximum pressure campaign. And I think the, the worst thing that could happen is to have uh, Donald Trump with a with um, a lame duck president like Hassan Rouhani at some summit in Baku, Azerbaijan, discussing um, some comprehensive deal because I think he'll potentially get rolled. Uh, if I just a couple of words about what Mark just uh, just said, I um, I too would expect them uh, to want to get into negotiations, if only as a tactic to string the administration along, uh, not necessarily to reach a deal, but just to wait out the admi- the, the, the administration and forestall any sort of harder um, policies by the uh, by, by the U.S. The the issue that I would like to see. Um, uh, greater attention given to is the is the military competition and in, in particular i would like to see the united states define defeating the hezbollah model as a goal of american strategy we say we we say we want to challenge iran's malign influence as a kind of common refrain that you hear the the malign influence is built on the hezbollah model on using proxy militias in neighboring countries to hold the governments of those countries hostage or to take over those, uh, over to, to take over those countries. Uh, it's, uh, Iran has perfected through its experience with Hezbollah this, this model. Um, it's now building on it in Iraq, in, uh, in Syria, in Yemen, and it's now brought ballistic missiles into the, uh, into the, um, uh, uh, into the equation. And, uh, we have not, we have never focused on this issue. We have, we have, it's perfectly within our capability to come up with answers to everything that Iran is doing. We're far more powerful than it is. But we never define it in, in those terms. And, and amazing things happen with no response from us. And just one example, ballistic missiles in Yemen that can hit Riyadh. Saudi Arabia is our ally. Iran escalated in Yemen and, and, and put missiles in place that can threaten our ally. And what price did we make Iran pay for that behavior? And, and Yemen is particularly egregious because it's not like, you know, in the case of Iraq, a neighboring country, Iran can say we have vital interest here and so on. Iran has not been, uh, has not uh, historically been active in, in Yemen. Um, and yet it chose to escalate there. And we did nothing, virtually nothing in, in, in response. I call that um, superpower malpractice. Uh, and so I'd like to see us uh, focus on that. And one last point with regard to what Mark said. Mark said that um, that uh, we have been uh, the, the the Iranians have out negotiated us historically. I disagree in one sense, and and that's that we have we have out negotiated ourselves. It's not that they have been. It's not that they are so clever. They are clever, clever, talented people. There's no doubt about that. But we have come to this. Uh, relationship or this this conflict, and I, I I cannot explain why, but we have come to it with the most naive assumptions about this country imaginable, and it's something deep in the American character, and it's not just Republicans or, or Democrats that we we think that there's some kind of clever little formula by which we can open up the dial on the back of the Iranians and and move it a couple of notches, and suddenly they're going to become our friends again, like they were at the time of the Shah. This fantasy has uh, has dominated our diplomacy on both the Republican and the Democratic side for for um, for uh, for three decades, and and I'm I'm mystified by it. But I'd, I'd like to see that change. Okay. And with that, well, we'll open it up to the floor for questions. Uh, let me try this man right here in the front down here. Yeah, my, name's, my name is Kevin Westham, retired Navy uh, officer. A uh, question on, like, you're talking about Yemen. I was going to ask the impact of Yemen, the issues with Qatar and the other Gulf states. 
how, how does that play into our strategy? What can we do to kind of mend those rifts? And then the second part would be um, uh, the Iranian Americans that are expatriates, you know, living in America and through Europe. How can what role can they play in trying to um, achieve our goals? It doesn't really want to go. Can I jump in? Yeah. Uh, the um, with regard to the split, um, it's not you know it's not just with the with the with the Qataris, also with the Turks. Um, as I see it, we can't have a successful containment strategy of Iran um, or any kind of really serious competition if we don't if we're not working both with the Saudis and the Turks. Uh, so um, I would like to see, uh, and, I, and I'm sure that I'm sure this is the goal of the administration, but I would like to see the administration um, work to to soothe the differences particularly between Turkey and, and, and Saudi Arabia, more importantly than between Qatar and, um, and, uh, uh, and, and Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, I think um, what that's going to mean, though, is it's going to mean some concessions to the Turks. Uh, I, my, my reading of Erdogan could be wrong, but my, my reading of Erdogan is that his, his conflict with Saudi Arabia is, is also a conflict with us about Syria. And he's trying to move us into a different position in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Syria. But if we don't have the Turks and the Saudis, you know, at least having amicable relations with each other and, and, a, and, a, and a, a blurry but general agreement about where we want to go in the whole region, we're going to have a lot of trouble containing Iran. I would just say on the, on the question about Iranian Americans, I mean, what's puzzle, I grew up in Toronto, um, which was, you know, it's affectionately known as Taranto. And, uh, you know, my experience with the Iranian, uh, American and Iranian Canadian communities is, I mean, the only place in the world where Iranians don't succeed is the Islamic Republic of Iran. I mean, they're incredible immigrants, incredibly successful and educated and entrepreneurial and, and, you know, community conscious. Um, so I think that the administration is doing the right thing and particularly Secretary Pompeo in really reaching out to the Iranian American community. Uh, he gave a speech at, uh, the Reagan Library in Simi Valley in the summer, which again was an important speech, not only because it was at the Reagan Library, because um, I think he, his speech really reflected sort of channeling Ronald Reagan with respect to how to deal with Iran, but also reaching out to the Iranian American community. I mean, three quarters of the room was full of Iranian Americans, and I think that's that's critical. I think some of the things that the administration can do from a policy perspective would be really important. One would be to to lift the travel ban on Iranians. I mean, I think there's nothing more counterproductive to our public messaging to the Iranian people than to have a travel ban that makes it almost prohibitive um, for Iranians to, uh, you know, to family members to come here. And if it's up to me, I'd give, you know, 100,000 green cards uh, to well-qualified Iranians who can demonstrate, you know, no connection to the regime. Again, that's that would be a critical move. And also in terms of, you know, opposition groups that we do support, um, the administration has to be very careful in you know who they're supporting. I think they should be supporting more opposition groups. I think they should be doing more on the covert side, um, but they also have to be very careful about how that plays inside Iran. Okay, I'll try this man down here in the front. I'm a Peter Humphrey, intel analyst and a former diplomat. We consistently miss a bully pulpit opportunity in pointing out that everything that Iran does is supposedly on behalf of God, and we don't throw that back in their face or say that to the rest of the world every single day. Um, if we did decide to go for broke, uh, can each of you assess quickly the opportunity, what, what the probability would be in the age of Twitter of deposing the regime from within without external military activity? There's been quite a lot of work done by... Um both the intelligence community and by academic analysts, looking at uh, what is our uh, success rate of predicting revolutions. And there is a very broad consensus in both parties that um, we have never accurately predicted a revolution in the last 200 years. Uh, that should be a warning that we are unlikely to know whether or not the regime in Iran is or is not vulnerable to being overthrown. Uh, I can give you a dozen reasons on either side of the equation. But I have to tell you right now that it would be quite inappropriate for the United States government to base its policy on uh, the assumption that it knew what was the answer to that question. 
and I would rather frame our policy in terms of uh, um, how can we get uh, the changes that we want in Iran's policies, such as Pompeo's list of, con- of conditions, um, whether or not the regime stays in power or not. And by the way, the there are lots and lots of indications that this regime in Iran is much more a revolutionary regime than an Islamic regime and much more uh, run by the, uh, the military, especially the Revolutionary Guards, than it is by men of God, people of God. Um, and in fact, the clerical influence over the regime is slight, whereas the Revolutionary Guards' influence is profound. This is much more of a revolutionary military regime than it is an Islamic regime. Can, can I just uh, f- follow up with a question to, to Patrick? Well, Patrick, what, what, is that, um, what does that fact mean uh, to you, the, the revolutionary rather than clerical, with respect to the question of re- regime change? Um, I think that, uh, that the heart and core of this regime is shifting towards nationalism rather than towards Islam. Uh, and that there are lots of popular nationalist events in Iran these days, uh, and that the Revolutionary Guard's doing a pretty good job of tapping into that. What does that mean for getting what we want? Uh, we have to understand that the, this, the heart and core of this regime's ideology is opposition to the West. It's not, it's not support for Islam. It's opposition to the West. Uh, and so therefore, any idea that we're going to have some kind of good relations with this regime is... Uh, naive and inappropriate. I would say this. I think it's a positive development that this regime is uh, transforming from a uh, clerical dictatorship to a military dictatorship. And, and I think it's, a, it's important because it, it no longer has legitimacy of an Islamic government, of an Islamic revolution to, um, to try and attract the support of, of millions of its co-religionists in the Middle East. I mean, if it becomes just another brutal Middle Eastern, you know, um, group of autocratic thugs, those, those governments in the Middle East haven't done very well. Now, does that suggest that it's going to survive for, for decades? Perhaps. I mean, I think Patrick's exactly right. We have no idea how long this, this regime will last, but it certainly has an ideology that is today's bankrupt. And I think we could do more of what Secretary Pompeo did at his speech at the Reagan Library, which is sort of quote Ronald Reagan and channel, you know, his Westminster speech, where Reagan said in, in early in his presidency, it is inevitable that Marxism, Leninism, and the Soviet Union will end up on the ash heap of history, uh, along with other tyrannies. You know, I, I, Reagan didn't have an explicit Soviet regime change policy. His view was that it was inevitable that the Soviet Union would collapse because its ideology was bankrupt, its economy was bankrupt, and it couldn't sustain its aggressive expansionist policy for uh, for decades on the, on the back of a bankrupt economy and ideology. I think that's a, I think that's a very good way of looking at the Islamic Republic. Uh, and for those of us in Washington um, who ultimately believe that the only answer to this question, really, in the long term, is a change in government, a, a peaceful change in government where, where Iranians have the opportunity to to vote and to have their you know their future are advanced and respected by their government we should be advancing that theory of the case that it's not regime change but that it is inevitable that this regime is going to end up on that same dust dust heap of history i i agree with all that and i agree with patrick's two points that um an explicit regime change policy uh, or policy designed to carry out revolution um, is brings about more problems than it's worth, and also it's just not going to happen in the Trump administration because Donald Trump is, uh, uh, you know, uh, ideologically opposed to that. Um, it also it also alienates our allies um, uh, and uh, uh, commits us to to actions that I'm not sure we're, we we the, the American people in general are willing to take. Um, I'm very much chastened by the what we've seen in Syria as the Assad regime uh, neared collapse, the Russians moved in and the Iranians moved in to save it. I think if the Iranian regime nears collapse, we're going to see the Chinese and the Russians move in to save it. I don't think that we're going to be, um, or at least to remake it. 
and I, I don't think that we're gonna we're gonna want to move in directly and, um, and and challenge them. We should, but we should be aware of that possibility. Um, uh, I also agree, and I think it's the most important thing to remember is what Patrick ended with that that we can't, this this regime, this revolutionary regime, is inveterately hostile to us. It's it, hostility to the United States and to the West is at the core of its identity. Um, so any deal we make with it, we have to recognize we're making with a with a, with a, with a um, with a regime that sees us as an enemy and 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 always will. That's one of the things that was profoundly wrong with the JCPOA because there was embedded in the JCPOA was this notion that we're going to transform these guys um, from devils into angels, and that's just not going to happen. Mike, I would say this: I mean, we may not be committed to a regime change policy, but I don't think there's anything wrong with the regime thinking we are. And I also don't think there's anything wrong with um, a policy that is dedicated to severely damaging the regime, severely weakening the regime, severely undermining its capabilities of influence um, and, and nefarious behavior. I mean, I, I am not of the view, maybe you guys are, um, that we should adopt sort of the, the, the view of confidence-building measures in order to um, ensure that you know, the, the regime will trust us to honor the deals that we sign and, and that we can, you know, take a very kind of what I've sort of have deemed the sort of Obama State Department view that through confidence building measures we can bring the Iranians to the table um, to get a comprehensive agreement that permanently cuts off their pathways to nuclear weapons, ICBMs and and uh, and regional hegemony. I mean, to me that is a delusion and it's naive. Um, our policy should be based on not confidence building measures but fear inducing measures. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with any of that. Khamenei has spent twenty years warning that the United States plans to overthrow the Islamic Republic through a, a velvet revolution, through a soft overthrow, through cultural invasion, and he has often said that Hollywood is much more dangerous than Washington, and that the real danger of, of regime change comes really from West, Western culture and and not from the actions of the United States government. So he, um, this is a man who is deeply convinced that uh, people-to-people exchanges and um, those kinds of measures are part of the plan of Washington to overthrow the regime. So for him, when you see Michelle Obama up there giving the uh, – uh, Academy Award to Argo. Now, this is an example of how Washington and Hollywood work hand in hand to bring about the overthrow of the Islamic Republic. But Patrick, let me ask you this: I mean, then isn't that an argument? Doesn't that actually support the the Obama theory of the case that we are no. we should seduce the hard men of Iran with? No, it's it's an it is impossible. Look, he really thinks that we are that everything that we're doing to seduce them is in part of an effort to overthrow them. And so he is convinced that the things which we see as benign measures to give him great confidence, he sees as part of our plan to overthrow him. And so he is convinced that people who are trying to promote uh, more exchanges, more students and the like, that their real effort is to overthrow the Islamic Republic. So whereas we see this as all benign kinds of things that you should do to build confidence, he sees this uh, as the mortal threat to the Islamic Republic. The disturbing thing for me is that he sees Hollywood as – Pernicious as I do. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit disturbing. Any, any other questions out here? Uh, we have room for one more. Well, that uh, just gives me a chance to uh, also throw in my two cents. I remember Ayatollah Khomeini saying that he feared uh, U.S. universities more than the Marines because right. of the values they taught and that that was one of the reasons why Hezbollah targeted so many professors at American uh, University in Beirut uh, to use as hostages. Is that they really do see those as transmission belts for values that are going to bring down this totalitarian uh, Islamist regime. Well, at that point, let me uh, let me just wind up the panel and thank you all for coming and join me in giving our speakers a very big hand. That was, that was good. I thought of that back and forth. Sure. That was great. Good question. Oh, the AUM. Are you saying there is no one, or there are you asking? There is no one. The fact is, the AUM issue is a big problem. It's a big problem. We're not, we have not practiced. That's so correct. So, my guys, you're still on. Okay. Mics. Mics. Good. Film. <laughs> just just <laughs> FYI. <you>. <laughs>